Outdoor Edge introduces the all-new Razor Guide Pack. Coming in at 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the Razor Guide Pack has it all. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you are into hunting, fishing, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. All right. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Okay, so today I'm going to do something uh, a little bit different, I suppose, um, <clears throat> and not something that uh, I think that I've done uh, in the almost three years uh, that, that I've had the opportunity uh, to do this podcast, but there was an episode not too long ago, uh, maybe four or five weeks ago, uh, with Walter Piper. Uh, and we discussed uh, the loons, um, specifically in kind of the upper Midwest. And the the goal of that podcast really was to have Walter uh, be able to talk about the work that he and his team are doing uh, in terms of research uh, and studies uh, of the of the loon, and also uh, because of. Um, some loss funding, uh, try to, um, you know, through, uh, the loon project, um, website, try to help raise some money so that going forward into the future that Walter, uh, the project that Walter is, is currently working on, um, was fully funded, uh, as best as possible since, uh, as I mentioned, losing that funding. And I don't know that we really did, um, well, no, let me let me back up there. I want to make sure that we're doing everything that we can for a species as great as the loon, and something that is uh, you know so iconic uh, to so many, especially um, in the Midwest, in the Upper Midwest, and and really all over. Uh, I've had a few guests um, in the past, uh, Drew Youngdike, for example, who we we had a very long discussion uh, about loons, and. <clears throat> 
it's it's one of those things that you know I got to thinking about it and I didn't have a guest scheduled for this week and I thought yeah I can do one of two things I can sit here uh, and talk at you guys for you know half hour 40 minutes whatever and possibly talk about some stuff that I've talked about in the past or you know hot button or, or you know conservation issues or topics that are you know are, are fairly relevant right now or I can try to do some good by re-releasing uh, the episode that uh, I had a chance to do with Walter. And maybe you heard it the first time around. And if you did, uh, I'm going to apologize right off the bat because uh, maybe you were expecting something new this week. Uh, but if you didn't get a chance to listen to it the first time around, uh, now is a great opportunity to go back or to, for the first time, I guess, listen to the episode and get a better understanding of what Walter and his team are doing, um, the results that they are seeing, uh, and then also ways that you guys can donate and make sure that the, <clears throat> the funding is there. Uh, it's necessary. Um, you know, Walter talks about in the episode how he runs a, uh, a very, you know, tight budget, tight ship, um, when it comes to the to dollars and cents that are being put into it, um, he has a lot of volunteer uh, researchers that are on there and in order to you know pay for some of their meals or to pay for uh, the necessary equipment um, so that they can check these boxes and things like nesting boxes uh, and things like that. Um, you know this is where a lot of that funding is going to. Um, so I, I highly encourage you guys, if you didn't get a chance to check it out the first time, listen to it this time um, and all the details uh, about where you can donate, where you can give back, how you can help be part of the solution going forward. All of that uh, Walter <clears throat> touches on, um, I think, towards the end of the episode. So I hope you guys really enjoy this one. Uh, it was a conversation that I really enjoyed with Walter uh, when we did have a chance to, to speak. And hopefully we can kind of help push him over the edge here um, after all of you great supporters and listeners get a chance to listen to it. So episode 148 uh, with Walter Piper. Enjoy, everyone. All right. Walter Piper, welcome to the podcast, sir. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm glad that... Uh, we got to chat for a few minutes and, and talk baseball and, and things like that and some uh, some mutual uh, some players that we find a mutual interest in and admiration for. So it's always nice to to have kind of that precursor conversation and, and find a little common ground before actually starting to record here. Yeah, absolutely. So, Walter, we um, our friends over at Two Percent for Conservation kind of put us in touch with one another um, about a project that you you're currently working on. You've been working on. Um, and one that's kind of in a critical state. And we thought it would be a great idea to, to get you on here uh, to share the work that you're doing and hopefully try to help push this this project that you've been working on um, across the finish line. So to kind of kick things off here, Walter, tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll kind of we'll get into the, the project that you're working on as well. Okay, great. Um, well, I'm a professor of biology at uh, Chapman University in Orange, California, and I've been here since uh, 1999. I always say I've been here since the last millennium, just to make it sound like <laughs> sound really impressive. But uh, since 99, and actually even before that, I was studying loons in Wisconsin, and I uh, started in 1993 in, in our study area in Wisconsin, in the Rhinelander, Minocqua area. <clears throat> um, and uh, I'm a I'm trained as a behavioral ecologist, and, and that is to say, I study 
territorial behavior, aggressive behavior, and, and mostly of birds. And so I was going along merrily along and studying loons and, and you know, they're wonderful birds and much loved birds um, in the North Country and um, noticed uh, sorry, I'm, I'm getting off track here, I no, guess, you're already. Good. You're but, good. But, uh, but I noticed in, in about, um, you know, I guess four or five years ago, it occurred to me when we captured them to mark them each year that uh, the chicks were not as heavy. They were not attaining lar as large mass as they had in previous years. And so I got to be worried about that. And also it seemed like there were fewer two chick broods. They either have one or two chicks. And uh, so I... Um, I thought to myself, well, I better analyze this statistically. It's I, I'm not a conservationist by training, but everyone's a conservationist if they have to be, uh, right? right? Absolutely. So, uh, and loons, uh, you know, when you love loons uh, and study them the way I do, you feel like you you, you want to give something back, and um, you don't want loons, you don't want your study animal to to, to disappear. So I did an analysis, uh, several analyses, uh, three or four years ago, and published a paper showing that uh, the loons really are declining. There are fewer two chicks broods. That they're not that the chicks really truly don't weigh as much. They're about they're down by more than ten percent if you adjust for age, uh, in terms of their mass. Uh, their reproductive success by any measure is way down, and their whole population size has declined by twenty two percent in our study area, which is an alarming number. I mean that's a that's yeah. a big number. It means almost a quarter of all the birds have have disappeared, and um, especially the birds in the, the floaters, the young adults, before they've reached, uh, they've they've settled on territories. Those birds are disappearing. So, so I just uh, got very worried about them and um, started to turn my attention to okay, what what what's going on? What's the problem? How can we potentially find out? why the decline is occurring and how we can fix it. So now there's a very much of a conservation focus to my work. So what was it that even made you kind of look at the wound in the first place? I mean, uh, you know, obviously being, you know, a professor of biology, I mean, it's without making a, a, a terrible joke here. I mean, it, it kind of is in your DNA to, yeah. you know, uh, you know, see problems or, or assess situations, um, you know, from a biological standpoint, but, you know, you're, you're at Chapman University, you're, you know, in Southern California, yeah. in the loon, you know, predominantly is, and I don't want to misspeak to, to say, oh, there's loons everywhere, but, you know, predominantly, you know, in the, in the Northern Midwest, uh, I mean, I'm, you know, here in Michigan, I mean, loons are one of those things that I, I grew up, you know, the yeah. very distinct calling sound of a loon, you know, seeing them dive and then, you know, 30 seconds later, they pop back up, you know, yeah. 30, 40, 50 yards, you know, down the lake or something right. like that. It's just, it's a very iconic sound uh, and bird for, for a lot of us here. So what, what drew your attention to that in the first place? Well, um, I really was similar to your experience, Marcus, in that when I was a child, I, we had a, um, still have a, a, a string of rustic cabins way up in, in Ontario, Canada. And, uh, you know, as, as long as I can remember, um, we heard loons cries echo across the water yeah. on Lake Tomogamy, way up there north of North Bay, Ontario. And, uh, and, and like you say, dive at, and then they, you know, they disvanish under the water. Like, yep. where do they come up? Of course, when you're a kid, you know, like, oh, let's try to find it. And, uh, you know, it come come up 200 yards away. And like, it's just a magical creature. And of course, when you got lucky enough to get close to them, 
they're they're this just strikingly gorgeous animal as well and really interesting quirky behaviors that they have so so i got fascinated with them at an early age but but really if you could pick a bird that's or an animal i guess that's hard to study that you might not even want to study it would be an aquatic diving bird that's hard to approach closely (laughs) and so really they're the worst study animal in some ways to to study um except that um you know about 30 years ago some folks developed a technique for capturing them with efficiently going out in motorboats when they have chicks and you can you can sometimes capture the adults and the chicks and so um i got into them actually i was a postdoc at iu and in indiana university in bloomington and uh when somebody learned i i was up in in uh in the upper peninsula actually at whitefish point bird observatory okay. uh, in the up um, studying white-throated sparrows when dave evers this fellow who continues to study loons uh, figured out how to how to catch he's the one really who kind of improved the technique for catching loons and uh at night by just you're really just spotlighting them at night but uh it's a it's an effective and safe uh technique and it's a technique that allows you to catch and mark um a lot of birds fairly efficiently and i mean it's marking an animal is is a profound thing being able to catch and mark an individual because then suddenly these these animals that were otherwise impossible to tell apart you can't tell one from the other even though they're strikingly plumaged that you can't tell them apart in any way so once you get bands these harmless colored plastic leg leg bands on their legs you can tell oh my gosh that's red over silver green over yellow that's the same male that was there last year. He's back, you know, this year. And then you can start to measure things like survival rate and you can not to mention behaviors, um, territorial behavior to see if they're battling for their territory and, and all that. So so anyway, to summarize, I got started, you know, I was enchanted by loons um, and I kind of got interested in them when when I learned about this new technique technique. Uh, that came about for catching them efficiently. And I thought, well, if we can catch enough of them and uh, start to study their territorial behavior, because he also noticed, Dave Evers also noticed that that occasionally they they evict each other, they kick each other off territories. And that was okay. really interesting to me as someone who studied territorial behavior. So I kind of got hooked back in 1992. And I told him, I, I, I made that the kind of phrase, I said the kind of thing you never should say to someone, which is, <laughs> Someone should study this, <laughs> you know, kiss kind, of, of death. kind of, yeah, kind of jinxing myself to study because no one immediately was had the training and interest to study the behavior, even though it looked like there were some interesting things going on. And so I started and, and we, he kind of he and uh, Mike Meyer with the Wisconsin DNR, um, he, he was also studying loons in, and marking them in Wisconsin. So I settled in Wisconsin where there was a cluster of studied of, of loons already marked and, and began to add to that effort. And that was, you know, 31 years ago. So, um, so what are some of the things that you've learned over the years about the loon that, you know, prior to you just had, you know, I, I know you just mentioned the, the, the territorial aspect of, <clears throat> of loons, but what, what are some things that you learned along the line that just kind of make you really scratch your head or you're just kind of in awe of, of what you've come across? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of things that, that have surprised us. But um, one of the maybe the single most surprising thing, and I still can't figure out why it happens, is that we know that, that loons 
uh, pair, stay close together and work very close together through all aspects of the reproductive effort. And so, you know, they pair together, they go out and build their nest together. But what we didn't know, uh, we also know, sorry, we also know that they use this rule called the win, stay, lose, switch rule, which means simply uh, if you nest, you put a nest in one part of the lake and and that you hatch chicks from that nest, then you reuse that. That's winning, and then you stay. You come back the next year, and you use that nest again. Okay. And if you lose, that is, if, if a raccoon gets your eggs, the raccoons are the worst predators, uh, if a raccoon gets the eggs, then you move to a new location. Okay, so that's losing and switching. Win, win stay. Win and reuse the nest site. Lose and uh, lose your eggs and move to a new location. So loons, like many other species, it's a very intuitive rule, right? It's very like common yeah. sense. You and I would do the same thing. Yeah, evolution, right? Um, right. And uh, and loons do it. And but we didn't know since the pair worked so closely together, we didn't know which of the two pair members was using that rule or if somehow it was a communication between them because if the birds are coming back each year they're very long lived and if if they're coming back to the same territory each year you know is it the is it the female that's she's the one laying the eggs is she the one that's choosing the nest location that kind of made sense to us um or is it the male or do they is there some discussion and they somehow are able to figure out who's who's been here longer who knows better and we're going to I'm going to defer to you and you're going to choose the nest location well to make a long story short the males for, for reasons we don't understand we uh, we learned about 15 years ago that males choose the nest location uh, we know that because when a male vanishes from a from a territory that was successful the previous year uh, the new male never nests in the same nest location that the male okay you so so it's like the new like male thing. comes in yeah the male new male comes he's clueless he doesn't know what he's doing and even the, if the female has been there for 20 years she has to put up with the you know the ignorance if that sounds mean, but the ignorance of the new male, because and he blunders around and tries to figure out where to nest, and that's the way. So isn't that? A, I mean, it's a, such a puzzling thing behaviorally. A, it, it, to me, it's a very classic male thing. Stumbling around, <laughs> well, yeah, trying to find yeah, our Now way. that you put that spin on it, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. The things that that that, that you know females have to put up with, but but anyway, that's what. And that you know, you might think, okay, maybe that's just an interesting oddity, but that turns out to be really pivotal in loon's territorial behavior because it means if you think about it it means that oh males that territory becomes worth uh, worth a ton to that male a male particularly has a great value because he learns about that territory and he's the only one who knows and can use that information and so if as he remains on that territory that territory gets more and more valuable to him over time because he starts to know I can nest here and oh sometimes I fail there but I can move it over here and so he he accumulates this information about where to nest um, and and that's interesting because males are the ones that that fight really hard for their territories and often die in the process so males females also fight for their territories and very very occasionally a female will die but male territory battles that lethal territory battles among males are really common and we think that's largely because males would suffer tremendously by losing this super valuable territory that they've been learning about year after year and having to go to a new a new site whereas a female if you think about it okay a female doesn't choose the nest location as long as she's on a territory with a male who knows where he's going knows where he's nesting she's just as good off as well off as on one territory as another so okay. it's a different problem that that 
you know, that females and males face. And it turns out to be really, really central to understanding why they behave the way they do in these battles. That the, the stakes are just so much higher for males. You, you mentioned something um, <clears throat> a few minutes ago about um, the, the kind of the age, uh, the age class uh, of loons. What is like the, the, I guess, if there is an average, but kind of the average life expectancy of a male or a female loon? Um, the average for a male, I mean, you have to realize a lot of birds die in their first few years. Mm -hmm. But um, if, if a male makes it back to the um, breeding ground, uh, the average life expectancy is probably somewhere in the late teens for, oh, for wow. males. We have these data. Uh, and so, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old is probably going to be about the mean. Uh, you never know when when you'll some accident will strike. I mean, if you're migratory, um, you know, there's some dangers in migration. There are always tiger sharks out there. And when you're down in Florida wintering, that can that can grab you. Uh, so you never know when that'll uh, the tiger shark will come with your name on it. Uh, but uh, females, on the other hand, live into their 20s and um, or or more often live into their 20s. We have we have both males and females who've lived into their 30s, uh, but um, females live longer. Males, many males, kind of hit the wall at about age 15, and their their survival rate declines uh, okay. at, at age 15. Some males keep going and going, but but a lot of males kind of hit the wall there, whereas females have a gradual decline, but but um, they 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 are stayers and survivors. And I guess, again, another parallel to humans, I suppose you could say, um, in that uh, females really hang in there well, whereas males tend to hit the wall sooner. Yeah, and, and I'm just making a complete assumption here, but it kind of goes back to what you were talking about with female or with the males picking the site location for nests and the females kind of in, inherently um, feeling comfortable in there because they know that the male has likely kind of, you know, done his due diligence, let's say, right over the course of time and, and using those, those breeding grounds and those nesting areas. Um, so there's, you know, less stress or less potential harm on the female. And if there is, you know, inherent danger in the area or something moves in some type of, um, you know, predator or anything like that, that the male is the one likely, like you mentioned, that's, you know, trying to defend that ground. And, and that's when, you know, they could potentially lose their life as well. Yeah. I mean, although I, I, I got to say, uh, Marcus, that it, these are like, these are male, male battles and female, female battles. Oh, okay. So these okay. are, um, so, um, the only case when you have a male attack a female or maybe a, a female attack a male, which would be very rare, is if, if a female is with her chicks and a, and a male intruder came in, she might try to attack the male. But, um, but yeah, uh, males are larger. They're about 20 to 25% larger. So they do more territory defense. They're also only the ones, they're only ones who can give the territorial call, which is called the yodel. And so males are kind of better equipped to to defend the territory and they spend a lot of time defending the chicks uh they give you this yodel a lot to try to drive and to keep intruders from even landing when the chicks are small because intruders do kill loon chicks sometimes um, okay so so yeah males do have a a higher um responsibility in t in terms of um uh, defending the territory but females when it, when another female comes in to try to take a female's territory it's like the male kind of stands back and says okay this is you uh and uh and uh, this is your responsibility and and vice versa i mean females don't help their you, you might think well why don't 
pairs get together and defend, drive yeah. anybody off who um, come, tries to come in. No, the female sits back and lets the males battle and, and vice versa. So, um, yeah, it's a it's very much a female on female or male on male battle. Okay. Uh, when that happens, unless there are chicks, and then and and that in that case, then you get both pair members working together because the chicks are so valuable to them. Yeah, and that was a that was an interesting um, fact that you said that <clears throat> usually there's only one, maybe two chicks um, in a cycle, which you know, I, and maybe it's just you know my own ignorance on the topic, but I would I would have assumed you know that you were looking at you know four to five, um, you know, yeah, per people. Yeah, people think of them as you know, of course, they they look for similar to ducks, right? But uh, so people think of them as ducks, and you know, think of the ducks, you know, mallard ducks with you know thirteen uh, yeah. ducklings behind, and mergansers that they see up uh, with with equal numbers, and you know, huge families. And um, that's not the case for loons. For loons, um, again, I guess you could say like humans. I mean, we not many young that we have, and there's a ton of investment in the young that we do have. I mean, I mean, chicks. Uh, or a loons uh, stay um, stay with their young and feed their young for like 11 weeks before for you know two and a half months until the young get old enough to be able to feed themselves and able to fly and, and, and whatnot. So there's a huge investment in either the one or the two chicks that, that loons produce. Very different model from what ducklings are doing, where like, you know, there are 13 ducklings today and they're 11 tomorrow and you hope at least a few of them survive. Right. And loons is like a big deal. You have one or two uh, loon chicks and you defend them to the hilt. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Walter, in your I guess your, your most recent project and, and, you know, the, the reason that we're able to, to speak here today, you're studying the decline, um, in like the North Midwest. And you said you've been working on this study for four or five years. Is that correct? Well, so in Minnesota, I, I um, I started in, this will be my third year coming up. Okay. We started in okay. 2021 in Minnesota in, in Wisconsin. We began in 93. So we're coming up to year 31. Uh, but in Minnesota, um, we are we're just getting into year three, and in some ways, though, even though it is a different state, of course, loons don't know don't know and respect state boundaries. I'm afraid. Uh, so, and the loons in Minnesota, they are somewhat different from the ones in Wisconsin. There are some average differences in the lakes and 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 all that, but but uh, really, we feel like the pressures that the loons are facing in Wisconsin and Minnesota are very similar. You know, there's a lot of recreational uh, activity up there. A lot of loons getting caught on fishing lines. There's lead, uh, that lead can be a problem, lead poisoning, um, and a variety of other things. I mean, we've more, most recently, we've just, uh, we just got a paper that were, that's just been submitted for publication on water clarity. There's been a decline in water clarity in Wisconsin. And, and I haven't looked closely at Minnesota yet because we're just getting ramped up there. But I suspect there's been also been a decline in water clarity in, in Minnesota in, our, in the study lakes that we're now working there. And, and water clarity is critical to loons, of course, because they're visual predators. They're looking for the fish underwater. So if right. the water gets less clear... It means they can't find as many fish for their young, and the chicks lose mass. And this paper that we just wrote up uh, shows pretty clearly, statistically, that there's a strong association between water clear, short-term water clarity, essentially water clarity in July, and the, the mass of the chicks. 
And in fact, even adult mass is tied somewhat to water clarity, less strongly than chicks. But the chicks are like, you know, in some cases, the chicks are living or dying over water clarity. And there's been an overall decline in water clarity in, in Wisconsin and Minnesota in a way that, or, sorry, in Wisconsin, we presume it's also true in Minnesota. Uh, and so we're very concerned because, of course, water clarity is a big measure of water quality that everybody right. cares about, even if you're not a loon aficionado like I am. <laughs> so is it, how do I want to ask this? Um, you've been you know, studying the loons in Wisconsin for, like you said, coming up on 30 years and you're in, you know, or or you're in year three or coming up on year three, um, in Minnesota, what, what differences are, you know, habitat and and things like that? I mean, those are, they're all very similar, right? Kind of like you pointed out, um, what are you seeing in Minnesota that, that kind of really has you going, you know, for, oh shit. Right. Like what? Well, we, we got to I mean, make something happen I, I, here. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm a kind of a worry ward anyway. And <laughs> I don't know. And, and since I've seen things decline in Wisconsin, I'm already kind of on edge and, and worried about um, Minnesota. But I, I will say that uh, just in the two years that we have worked, the last two years have been poor reproductive years for, for the part of Minnesota that we're at. Now, we're in uh, Crow Wing County in north central Minnesota, a little bit north of our uh, Wisconsin study area, if you're looking you know, latitudinally, and, uh, but right pretty much in the heart of the state. And it's the the black flies, which are a big problem because they're you know they're pests for humans, of course. But this is a different species of black fly that only only bothers loons, um, and they they really can bother loons severely and cause almost 100% abandonment of May nests in some oh, wow. in really severe years, which happened three years ago in Wisconsin. And we got just about the same thing in Minnesota. Uh, just uh, just this past year and the year before were both really bad black fly years, um, and so that that already makes me think. Hmm, you know, we knew there were black flies in Minnesota, but now we know. Wow, they are a major cause of nest failure. And you know, if you're if if you're looking at things from a population level, a loon population level, if black flies are severe, it's like it's like being hit in the mouth early in the year because they cause you they cause huge rates of abandonment of the first nest. And those first nests are the most important nests. Those are the most likely to be successful. And therefore, if you have massive abandonment of those first nests, you know it's never it's not gonna be a good year. It can't ever bounce back to where even though they try to renest, most pairs will try to renest, but but many will fail. And so it's just like you know, they just lost that great opportunity. So the fact that black flies are really bad, and we've also noticed that this last year, chick mortality in, in Minnesota was higher, higher in Minnesota than uh, in, in 2022 than we've ever seen in Wisconsin uh, in any year. So, wow. I mean, I don't know. It's Again, it's too early to be an absolute <laughs> to, in panic mode, but I'm very concerned because this suggests that uh, that that reproductively Minnesota loons aren't producing as many young as as they should be. Um, uh, there are a couple of possible reasons for that. It, it, it's there are there's a higher rate of artificial nesting platforms. You know, people put out these one meter by one meter 
squared uh, PVC, usually uh, nesting platforms for loons. And those are great because they, you know, they allow loons often to hatch eggs and the raccoons can't get to them because they, they anchor them offshore. So those are great. But now people have put so many of those up in Minnesota that we worry that they are causing loons to nest because they're so attractive to loons. They're causing loons to nest in areas where they wouldn't even think of nesting before because there's no nesting habitat. And that could draw adults into places where there's good nesting habitat on that platform, but where maybe there's too much boat traffic or maybe uh, fish populations aren't high enough to sustain the chick. So it's possible that that's causing, and and this is speculative, but it's possible that's causing a disconnect between where the nesting habitat is and where the habitat, good habitat for raising chicks is the safe habitat where there's enough food. So that's those are a couple of couple of concerns that I have in Minnesota that have already got me tossing and turning a little more than than I do ordinarily. So it's almost like you're there that you know people are creating these you know safe havens for for nesting, but due to that it's almost it almost has the loons going um against their instincts or or their better judgment in terms of like finding an area that is you know a safe nesting ground but also has the right um you know habitat around it yeah. to allow um you know the birds to develop when they're young and everything like that with you know a healthy fish population and everything like that because right. that probably goes back into you know what we what you talked about is you know learning you know as these males nest in the same area over and over again they're learning okay like you know we we know that there's good fish here right um, you right. know we we know that it's safe so it's you're doing it's, something good but almost having a reverse effect it's in poss- the long now run. now th- 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 it's early days marcus so it's too that's my again that's my worry wart sign side that's that's uh, you know that's coming up with that explanation but it's possible that that uh, that we're putting in, uh, in some cases, there we're putting in platforms where, um, where that hatches the chicks, and we feel good, you know, good about the chicks that are hatched. But we haven't taken like, yeah, like you say, a sort of a holistic view to make sure that the habitat otherwise is going to support those chicks, and the parents are going to be able to raise those chicks in a safe place. Because just having a platform out somewhere doesn't mean you got a good place. Yeah, it doesn't right. a good safe place for the chicks to hang out. And uh, yeah, I mean, people put out platforms sometimes in very busy areas where they're huge boats coming through all the time at speed. And you think, wow, those chicks are going to be in trouble if the parents, you know, get caught out with their chicks in the wrong location at the wrong time. So yeah. Now these nesting platforms, are the you know when these are are being put into place and things like that the the whether it's conservation organizations whether it's just you know regular people who you know are trying to you know do their part so to speak are they you know consulting with you know biologists like yourself in order to kind of determine these optimal places for these um, nesting platforms to go? I think that usually happens. I know I, I know Wisconsin better than uh, Minnesota. So we're just learning about Minnesota. Uh, but but I know that in Wisconsin, there are guidelines uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you have to get permission to put uh, to put the platform out. So you have to check with the DNR. And and I often uh, get asked as as a resident loon expert, is this a good is this a good promising place to put a nesting platform? Is this a good lake to put a plot? You know, does does the information that you have on the breeding success of the loons uh, make it look like they will benefit from the so so there's a pretty careful study in Wisconsin. I, th- I think in Minnesota, a, a similar thing happens. 
um, in most cases, at least. And I certainly also want to say, if you know, people hear these, you know, people who put out platforms, there are people who year after year put out platforms um, in Minnesota and Wisconsin, both. And they, they put it out, the loons use it, they have chicks, they fledge the chicks, and we know that that's a positive for the population. So I do not want to run into this situation of just, you know, <laughs> casting aspersions on folks right, who put out right. platforms. Because many, in many times, we know that it boosts the, the population success. But there are some cases where pe uh, people seem to put out platforms that, that maybe are not in a great location, maybe should have checked, or they put too many, too many platforms and put them too close together. Okay. Um, so, um, and also, you know, when you put out a platform, that's a big deal. When there's when there's um, 28 inches of ice, you know, on a lake uh, in the winter, you know, you're going to have to put that platform out. You're going to have to take it in in the fall after the loons have used it, probably do some uh, maintenance on the platform, take it out in April to make sure it's there when the loons arrive the next spring. So there's a lot of maintenance and and and, uh, and those things are heavy, big clunky <laughs> platforms that they have to take out. So, um, so yeah, I mean, when in, in the best case scenario, platforms are, are really a positive uh, for loons and for the overall population. But in some case, and, and, and in many cases, they are regulated. In some cases, it doesn't seem as closely regulated as it, it should be, I think. Okay. No, that's that's fair. And, you know, it's like you said, you didn't want to cast dispersions. And, and I don't think anyone's, you know, volunteering their time to be malicious with where <laughs> no. they're, they're putting, you know, nesting platforms. But I was, no, I was just kind of No, it comes from a curious. good place. It always yeah. comes from a good place. Yeah. So... You know, you've been studying loons in Wisconsin for, again, close to 30 years. Do you feel like, is that a study that is, you know, just going to continue for the foreseeable future? Um, is it going to, are you going to get to a point with that where, you know, you have, you know, enough data points where you can then sit down and, and you know, spend, you know, however long it takes to, to do a, a thorough, you know, analysis of, of all the information and then make recommendations to, you know, the DNR, the Fish and Wildlife, you know, whichever department uh, is involved. And I guess that's question one. And question two would be kind of the same thing as it pertains to Minnesota. How long does that study need to be before you feel like you can, you know, make some some very educated, you know, uh, recommendations for, you know, how to how to rectify, you know, the situation that we're in? Um, those are good questions and important questions. Uh, and my wife asks me those questions sometimes <laughs> too, uh, cause you know, when I, when I leave California in the summertime, she, she stays here. So, um, so it's, 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 a you know, it's a challenge. I've been do, so doing it for so long. It's like become the norm, but, but no, they're good questions in Wisconsin. You know, my view in Wisconsin is, you know, this has been, uh, a, a project that's given me so much. And I just, I, I do feel like I owe the folks there. I've made so many friends and so many folks have supported me and allowed me to do this research that I need to, now that we found that something's going wrong, we need to figure out what exactly it is. And I need to to get to the stage where I can make recommendations, as as you alluded to, and I don't know what time the time course will be for that. I um, now we, it looks like water clarity is an issue. It looks like uh, black fly populations are higher now. It appears than they've been in in years past, uh, which both seem to be related to rainfall, increased rainfall, and maybe increased temperature as well. Um, so. 
so these and and um uh, so I think we're at least, I don't know, I mean, I, I, I need to get to the point where uh, I've linked, if, if it's water clarity and black fly populations, I've linked those to the decline in the population and, and uh, conveyed that information to, uh, to the DNR and, and, and made it known to the public and so that folks in Wisconsin know this is what we have to do if we want to save loons here. And because uh, I do think we're going to be facing that at some point, I think down the road, maybe not too far from from now, uh, we have to make. But but that's at least several more years away before you can nail things down. We we have some glimmers of what's going on in terms of water clarity and black flies. Um, so that's Wisconsin. Um, Minnesota, Minnesota is sort of the other end of the um, of the spectrum in terms of we're just getting started. But I've I've said um, and I think and I strongly believe this is true, and within a couple of years, maybe by 2024, 2025, after the 2024 or 2025 field season, we'll be able to put a preliminary population model together that will give us a, uh, a, a number, a lambda, this is this number that population uh, biologists used, and if lambda is one, it means the population stable. If lambda is 1.01, it means the population is going up by 1% each year and so forth. So it can be 0.99 is going down by 1%. Um, and so you, you, you come up and generate an estimate of, of this scientific estimate of, of, of lambda, of what the population's doing. And I think in a couple of years in Minnesota, we'll know, okay, is the population stable there? Despite these early concerns that I have, maybe right. I'm wrong. I've been wrong a lot, and maybe I'm wrong there, and maybe the population's stable, and if so, phew, you know, what a relief. Maybe even the population's increasing. It doesn't seem to be. I, that would be hard to believe. But maybe it's going up, in which case, phew, again. But if the population's declining, anything like what the population seems to be declining in north-central Wisconsin, then it, you get to, uh, uh, then you get to the point where you're thinking, okay, what do we do? Uh, then, then you have to do the same sort of analyses that that I've begun to do in Wisconsin, where you say, okay, is it water clarity? Is it black flies? Is it something else? Is it human recreation in some way? Because human recreation is a is sometimes an issue. We lose some loons to to human recreation, um, uh, you know, which is fine. I don't I, I don't think it's I don't think that's likely to be making a uh, you know, I don't think that's likely to be Putting causing the decline. Yeah. I, I don't know, but uh, but you have to have everything on the table. You know, you need to take an honest look at it and see what's going on. But that's so that's a couple of years away before the time in Minnesota when we say, okay, here's what seems to be the problem, and now if there or, or you know if there is a problem, actually that, that's the first step is is there a problem, and if there's a problem, then then uh, then we go into phase two. Okay, what what can we do about it? And of course, the fact that we will have been already we're a little bit ahead in knowing about Wisconsin should be able to be transferable to Minnesota. A lot of the lessons that we learned in Wisconsin can be transferable to to Minnesota so that we can get a good sense uh, from that um, uh, um, to make recommendations to to the DNR and, and, and local agent, conservation agencies uh, and the state and legislators. What do we need to do to protect loons? I mean, in Minnesota, you know, they love loons both places. In Minnesota, it's the state bird. Right. Uh, so, you know, people don't want to mess around with uh, with losing uh, loons from Minnesota. And, and the stakes seem even higher there, although people in Wisconsin also love loons. So, um, uh, so but, you know, so we're several years away from from um, being able to, to know what 
what we can what we need to do in each place but um yeah but and, but but having one will help us learn about the other i think and that's going to be a real benefit of of having you know spent all that time in wisconsin yeah and that was <clears throat> excuse me that was one of my questions was going to be is you know what can you apply from wisconsin to minnesota does that you know once you kind of have your your lambda your baseline right it, are a lot of those things going to be transferable? Can you, you know, I guess shorten, uh, you know, the quote unquote learning curve uh, yeah. in terms of, you know, you've spent 30 years in, in Wisconsin, yeah. you know, studying all these activities, you know, maybe you can come to the same conclusions in in Minnesota, but maybe it takes you 12 years, right? Absolutely. Just, just Absolutely. based on lessons even, learned. Or even faster. I yeah. mean, it, it depends how similar they are, uh, Marcus. Uh, if, if they're very similar, it could be that, that really it's the same two things or the mm-hmm. same three things or whatever, because they are very similar to look at them. The, the, you know, they're both lots of human recreational activity, um, some boating problems that loons have, getting killed by boats sometimes. And... Um, and uh, lead lead problems in both states, um, and then, like I said, the black flies and the water clarity is probably similar. So it may be that exactly the same thing needs to be done in Minnesota as Wisconsin. In which case, instead of twelve years, it'll be you know maybe five years. We do have to get we do have to get enough population data in Minnesota to to know what's going on and be able to say confidently because you know we we want to do rigorous science and for that you need a large sample you need to follow enough lakes to be able to not say something you know off the cuff uh you need to say something with with statistical significance and and you need to make sure that you send it to peers uh you know collaborate other scientists who agree this is what's going on you have the evidence here's what we need to do and then let's get it done yeah. And you've, you've mentioned it a few times, but the, the lead poisoning, um, I had a gentleman on the podcast, uh, who works for the Michigan wildlife Federation here, and he is a, uh, a big advocate and a big proponent for, uh, non-lead, uh, fishing tackle and non-lead, um, ammunition in your firearms as well, because, and, and maybe I'm late to the game, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, really having a, a full understanding of, of, um, that issue, but that's one that it's almost like a silent killer, um, because it's, it's hard to, or it may be hard for individuals to, you know, go out and, you know, they're using, you know, lead ammunition or lead, um, you know, tackle when they're fishing and they can't see the results, right. They can't see the, the result a year down the road or two years down the road. Um, especially, you know, like in birds that catch, you know, predatory birds that are catching fish that have lead poisoning and then it's killing the birds. Like it's just, yeah. it's kind of this, this slow trickle effect, but it's certainly one that I have seen, um, a lot bigger, uh, of an emphasis put on, um, in recent years. How are you guys able in your studies to, you know, determine these types of things like how lead poisoning, um, is affecting and, you know, what, I guess the, the totality of that effect. Well, um, of course we study, um, you know, we study these marked birds that are living on their territories and look at their behavior, but we do lose them to, to lead poisoning. We have, um, um, usually it's, it's angling, you know, it's fishing incidents where they, 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 they swallow a jig or they swallow a sinker and uh, they take it from a fishing line. Um, and so, but we don't see as much of it as uh, as the rehabbers do, the folks who okay. are called and, uh, and 
when when there's a loon that's in trouble this is there's a loon that's acting strangely or there's a loon on shore or maybe there's just there's a dead loon um you know um uh, and uh but the um and so so we're beginning to collect data uh, more systematically and we're beginning to look for lead more you know do x-rays and look for lead more than uh, than we used to both in and that's happening both in wisconsin and in minnesota different agencies in wisconsin and minnesota and i in many cases it's rehabbers who are really doing fantastic work spending a lot of resources to try to save birds um that that have lead poisoning and hoping they can bring them back and occasionally that can happen or at least documenting this bird died from lead poisoning you know this bird died from lead poisoning this so um so really um I don't collect as much information about that, although anytime there's a loon in trouble, uh, in real trouble, we'll catch it and quickly take it to to a rehabber uh, and uh, and try to get some help. And we have a number of rehabbers who've stepped up in both Wisconsin and Minnesota who will do that. But but it is a big problem. I mean, I mean, um, if you think about it, I said, you know, earlier on, I talked about how a male loon can be on a territory for 20 years. And we've just docked another paper that I've just uh, writing up and I'm about to send off for publication is is a paper that that shows that males continue to increase and increase steadily in their ability to hatch eggs, even after 15 years on a territory. They're still getting a little bit better each year because that's and that's the the value of that familiarity they have with a territory. And so think about it. If a male on a territory that's been there for 20 years gets lead poisoning, that all of that knowledge and you know information that that male had about is 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 lost and that territory the new male that comes in is back to square one he doesn't know any doesn't where to know where to nest and so as from a population standpoint you know those males become these super valuable knowledgeable animals that um that produce that crank out the chicks once they get the, the get the experience so that's a case where lead poisoning really really can hit them hard and i mean lead poisoning of females is terrible too it happens that females there are more females there's a female bias um, sex ratio so there are more females in the population than males um in 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 our population in uh in wisconsin so a female a death of a female loon isn't as devastating as as the death of a male territory holder but either way it's bad it's 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 yeah. uh, something and it's something that we really need to fix because there are substitutes i mean if they were if we were putting people out of the fishing business uh or putting people out of the hunting business with with uh, getting rid of lead then that would be a tough call but really this should be i know it's a little more expensive but honestly aren't the loons worth it uh and and as you say it's a it's a tragic situation because people don't see the immediate effect it takes right. it takes a, a couple of days for a loon to ingest a, a lead sinker and then become unable to move and then ultimately die and it's a must be a pretty bad way to go too and uh yeah because it's not quick and um yeah, that's that's something that we really, really, really we need to think hard about fixing because, uh, in addition, we don't know whether lead poisoning itself is a serious enough problem to hit the population to cause to be contributing to the population decline. But it's one of those; it's sort of low-hanging fruit. I mean, let's let's fix this. This is this is yeah. easy to fix. We know how to fix it. There are substitutes. We, it's not going to change our lives. Let's yeah, do it's, it. It's a very tangible um, yeah. change that can be made, and you can yeah. see an immediate impact. So, <clears throat> um, kind of going back to trying to bring it full circle a little bit here, we talked about, you know, 
the the crisis, uh, if you want to call it that, the that that you're experiencing, that you're you're studying uh, in both Wisconsin and Minnesota, and in Minnesota, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong there, Walter, but the the funding mechanism um, that you guys have for the work that you've been doing um, has taken a bit of a hit, correct? Yeah. In Minnesota, yeah. now our I guess for for quick clarification, um, you know, funding for you know these different research projects and stuff comes in kind of in, in all different avenues. Is it different funding mechanisms um, for Wisconsin and for Minnesota, or is it all kind of pooled together? I guess. Well, it, it could be either one. Thanks for asking about funding, but it it, it could be either one. In, in years past, we've gotten funding from the National Science Foundation from NSF. So. Um, and for 14 years out of the 31 that I've studied loons, we've had National Science Foundation funding. But um, NSF funding is now much more competitive than it used to be. And it used to be that, uh, you know, about 25 to 30 percent of all the grants that were that were submitted uh, were were funded. And now it's in the at least in the programs to which I apply, it's in the single digits. And so oh, it's wow. just really, really hard to get the money. Uh, so that's pinched us. And we have applied for for funding from National Science Foundation. There's also been a little bit of a juggling of the programs in a way that made it harder to get funding, long-term funding for, for animal behavior-related programs like the work that I'm doing. So that that made it harder for us because the program kind of closed down in a way that, that impacted us um, negatively. Um, but so, so I've gotten a lot of funding from National Science Foundation in the past and I'm, I'm continuing to try to do that. But the reality is with funding rates as low as they are, uh, you, you look for new, uh, new sources of funding. And um, fortunately, um, by a variety of means, despite the loss of NSF funding and, and some, some other funding that we had in, in Minnesota uh, from another funding source, we've been able, uh, you know, I have a blog that uh, that has a bunch of followers and people love loons and I talk about loons and talk about the research that that I do and and um, the, by the way the blog is I hope it's okay to plug yeah no I was gonna, and, I was going to ask you when you were done so go ahead <laughs> okay it's at loon loonproject.org um, just loonproject.org and um, and it, it'll show show you about the blog and give you an opportunity to to sign up if you're interested and you just get a you get an email the blog post each time I post a blog. And and so that is uh, something that that uh, I did because I enjoyed it and I thought I wanted to share what I was finding and it's it, um, it's it provides lots of educational information and it kind of kind of quick look at the early scientific findings before they're actually published so that I can share that with folks as well as sometimes just my thoughts about loons and and uh, sometimes there's a personal aspect to being a scientist and struggling to to study uh, study animals in in nature and so there's all sorts of things in there but there's a lot about loons and uh, and people have uh, gravitated towards that blog. And when people heard that there were funding problems, I've gotten a lot of folks to step up 
and uh, at least they've gotten me to the stage now where in Minnesota um, there's enough funding for me to put a sort of a skeleton team together to kind of keep kind of tread water I guess you could say in in Minnesota so I can keep fun, uh, I can I can head back there and collect data early in the year and um, to, on to, to see which marked birds are have come back to try to look at and see if we can say something about nesting in the middle of the year and then to go late in the year to to see where which tears uh, which territory uh, territorial pairs have chicks so that we can we can capture some of those birds and mark them and continue to expand our population so we've got funding to just you know just barely enough to get that to kind of keep the project going but we really want to get to the next level where we're able to do careful analyses make frequent observational visits to these territories about 105 territories in minnesota just as we do in wisconsin so that so that we can get really accurate information about nesting behavior, about the ages of chicks, because that turns out to be critical to our ability to, to, to measure the mass of the chicks. Uh, we have to adjust for age in order to see whether the mass has declined in Minnesota as it has in Wisconsin. So without a full-flung effort, the full funding, um, it's uh, it's hard for us to get as high quality data as as we like in order to ask the questions about water clarity and and black fly impacts uh, that we would like to. So so we're kind of we're stuck uh, at a stage where uh, and and we're happy to be at the stage where we are where this replacement this funding that we lost a couple of months ago we've we've gotten uh, a lot of that back and uh, but we're we're not able to put together a full a full field team, a uh, regular field team in Minnesota. And that, and I, you know, I'm a little, you know, pretty anxious about that. That's why, that's why we're, we're asking for whatever help people, people feel they can give us. Cause we'd like to be able to get to the point where we can say, here's how many loons are doing in Minnesota. And then if they're struggling, let's go the next step and see what recommendations we can make for turning things around. Yeah. And we, we kind of glitched there for a second. I don't know if you noticed that or oh, not, Yeah, but, um, where you know for and i think the the loon you talked about it it's it's just such this iconic bird especially in the midwest and for so many of us i mean you and i both shared our stories for people who you know want to get involved right for you know we have a you know i I would say a healthy listenership um, on the podcast and i think um a lot of them are very like-minded when it comes to conservation and to um, you know, kind of a, a call to arms, if you will, when, when we see an issue <clears throat> and we know that we can help contribute, um, to that in some way, shape or form. So where can people, you know, if they, you know, if they have, you know, $25, if they have $50, whatever the case is, right, whatever they can contribute, where can people, um, go and, you know, learn more about the, uh, is it just at the loon project where they can just learn more about the work that you're doing, where they can possibly donate or send donations to? Yes. Um, again, it's it's Loon Project, just Loon Project all run together. One one word, loonproject.org. And we have a, uh, a lot of information there about um, what the goals are, what our recent findings have been, uh, the about why we study birds, why do why we study loons, why do we mark loons, what what um, 
what have we found out over the years? Uh, who's involved? Who are the people? Who am I? Who are the people involved in the project? Uh, there's also a publications link, so you can see the publications uh, that we've made over the years. Um, some of them on behavior that, that I described. Some of them on conservation. More recently, they're more focused on conservation. And there's a donate page as well. Okay. So there's a there's a sub uh, sub menu on on loonproject.org that uh, that allows folks to to donate. And we would we would love it if if people um, would would uh, donate and anything they can. And um, you know, a lot of the donations we we've got uh, also some of the most valuable ones are if people happen to know know others or or, or live or have uh, houses up in um, in the Cross Lake Minnesota area or in the Rhinelander Wisconsin area. Folks following the blog have allowed us to sometimes allowed us to stay there even for a short period of time uh, during the summertime. Uh, maybe you know before they come up in July, we if we if we could stay stay uh, you know they, sometimes people provide us lodging, um, and so any kind of donation, whether it's whether it's a financial or, or or some sort of lodging that folks can provide, could be enormously valuable and could could allow us to keep the Minnesota project going, which is. Uh, Again, we're hanging in there with the Minnesota project, but yeah. um, but we could use anything that people could provide. So I hope Do that's you, the information you needed. Yeah, absolutely, and and I'll be sure. Um, you know, once we we get the episode all put together to to highlight uh, loonproject.org um, in the show notes. Um, you know, and, and anywhere where people can access the the episode, that they'll be able to access um, the website as well. Do you have um, like a dollar amount that you guys are trying, or is at this point is it Hey, any any contributions are are welcome, and they will be put to good use. Well, any certainly any contributions are are really appreciated and 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 welcomed. Um, I mean, I run a pretty uh, lean operation uh, in in both places in Wisconsin. You know, that's one of the things I'm proud of is that we we go out and we get young students who are interested in wildlife uh, biology, and uh, we see whether you know, and, and I just spoke to one this morning and um, uh, to see, you know, she was she's interested in wildlife biology, getting more field ex exposure. And mm -hmm. and this is an intense field project. We cover a lot of ground and we um, we fan out. We work in solo canoes on our own in order to maximize the amount of coverage we can make. So we so we really do run a lean operation. Um, I mean, realistically, in order to to uh, to cover Minnesota in in great detail. Um, we probably need another twenty twenty k uh, to 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 do that, and 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 you know that's a huge number, and and uh, so, but um, that's what we you know that's our experience has shown us that we need about about uh, thirty five or or forty k in each state to keep the project going, and and uh, and that's just. That's no salary for me. Uh, you know, I get paid by Chapman. That's just uh, funding that we get, give to, to give a little stipend to the students, sure. um, support, travel support for the students, travel support for me to be able to just go out to the study area, replace broken canoes and paddles and, uh, yeah, and there's whatnot. Overhead. There's, there's, yeah, it's just sort of overhead know, stuff, a little bit of storage yeah. cost, and it just adds up. And that's what it comes to. So so we would love if we could get to, to, to 20K, uh, that would allow us to go from the skeleton crew that we will have in Minnesota to to a full-blown um, field effort in Minnesota so that we're we're really uh, moving quickly towards knowing what might be 
what might be causing problems in Minnesota or, or really assessing the population so that we, you know, so we can tell whether there could be problems or not. But um, so, yeah, that's kind of our target. Uh, at the moment, but but any anything people can can afford to send would be so uh, so uh, welcomed. And uh, any thoughts or advice or, or 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 recollections, I love to get emails from people who who tell me what you know what they've learned about loons or how they've known them and what how loons have influenced their lives. So people want to email me at at wpiper at chapman edu w that's just my name, W-P-I-P-E-R at Chapman, C-H-A-P-M-A-N dot E-D-U. And just tell me, this is what loons mean to me. And, and maybe if you can afford a donation to help us out, that would be tremendous because we want to keep loons around uh, as long as we can. And the idea, honestly, the idea that they'd ever be lost from Wisconsin or Minnesota is just, I just can't even fathom that. that that's just a horrifying prospect. And I want to do what I can uh, during my uh, you know, remaining years out, out in the field to, uh, to make sure that never happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's, I mean, commendable is not even the right word. Um, the fact that, you know, you're kind of making this your, your life's work or the, you know, the, for the better part of your professional career, um, yeah. you know, your, your goal to try to better understand and, uh, mitigate a problem that we see out there. And what you mentioned, you know, kind of your, your target goal of, of 20,000, um, you know, I think that, you're right that that is certainly a lot of money, but I think it's also one that's very attainable. Um, you know, if we can uh, get this message uh, in front of the right people um, and in front of the right organizations, I think that, you know, thousand dollars here, you know, $500, you know, things like that, that, that can add up very quickly. And I think that, um, you know, the loon especially probably holds a place in, in people's hearts. Um, you know, it's much further than just the Midwest here, right. You know, everyone's got stories, you know, kind of like you talked about. Um, and I think that, you know, stories like this projects like this, they, they resonate with people and the, just the thought, like you said, of, you know, this, the decline of, you know, such a, an iconic animal, um, is scary, especially yeah, for, you know, you don't have to be a hunter, a hunter or an angler. Um, you just have to be, you know, someone who spent any amount of time in the outdoors and to, to gain an appreciation, you know, and not even for loons, you know, maybe it's for, for other, you know, wildlife, um, that, you know, people have an affinity for that you know, they don't want to see things go away. Right. And I think that, you know, with, with 2% and, you know, the relationship, um, there that I, you know, I, I feel very confident that we can, you know, really try to help, you know, put, this project in the best possible shape to, to succeed and to, to give you guys the, the tools, you and your team, the tools that you need in order to help, you know, push this thing across the finish line, like I said earlier, and, you know, make educated and, and scientific decisions about, um, you know, what's possibly causing this decline in population and hopefully, you know, help rectify that. Yeah, I, I thank you so much for saying that. I, I, I strongly agree. I mean, I, I think there are people, I mean, I used to be one of these people that, that before I started studying loons, that something about going up to the North Woods and, and, and being, you know, inside your cabin at night and hearing loons at night is just magical. And I felt like, you know, my, my stress and my, uh, you know, my pulse... <laughs> pulse rate came down the stress melted Anxiety away and gone. somehow yeah it was it's just so 
such a special experience and to to lose that the threat of losing that is just it's just obscene to me and uh, I, I do feel like you know we're the ones on the ground really collecting the data and learning the information that we will pass on to to uh, agencies to local agencies and state agencies and, and federal agencies if if need be to try to turn things around to try to change policies once we have the science once we have the knowledge we can go in smart and know where the pressure points are and and try to reverse uh, the the trend the negative trend that we see in Wisconsin and that the negative trend that's likely to be there uh, in Minnesota if we find one so but without that knowledge we're going in blind we're flying blind right. and um, so uh, so I think the money that uh, the, the the people are able to, to to give us is money that that goes to knowledge and goes more directly to to conservation than um, you know than maybe a donation you'd make to some organization that's interested in loons and other animals but but um, you know we're, we're we're buying a canoe paddle uh, yeah. <laughs> you know with that money you're we're, buying um, transportation <laughs> yeah, we're 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 able to go to the study area. We're able to hire another person to cover some more lakes in order to increase our sample size to get better statistical results, so that we really know what's going on. So we feel it strongly um, when people give uh, to our our project, and uh, we think we use that money very very efficiently. Yeah, a lot of bang for the buck, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, I I hate to discourage people from. Um, you know, where or encourage or discourage people on, on where they spend their money. But, you know, instead of, you know, maybe buying a membership to certain, you know, whatever, right. I mean, that's not even, yeah. right. I shouldn't have said that, <laughs> but, you know, instead of, you know, buying this, you know, maybe, you know, you spend that 35 bucks or that 50 bucks and you, and you donate it to a good cause that's, that's going to potentially help, um, you know, slow down or stop the, uh, the decline of, uh, of a certain animal and, you know, I, I I like the fact that while this is, I guess you could call it reactive in some sense, I think we're being, you and your team are being proactive in, in the approach to try to not let it get to a point where it's like, you know, these are going to, you know, land on, you know, a list that we don't want it on here before right. too long if something isn't done. So if we can get out ahead of that as best as possible, I think that the the work that you and your team are doing are is, is incredible. And, um, you know, hopefully with this podcast and, and hopefully with, you know, the, the, the work that 2% is doing to try to raise awareness for this as well, that, that we can, you know, right the ship, so to speak, and, and get you back to full strength with your team there. And we can really, um, you know, make, you guys can really make, I say we, yeah. <laughs> that you guys can really make a change for this because I think um, it's we, I think we're all, we're all, you know, interested in this and, uh, and yeah, I, I do think, um, there's enough, there's still most of the loons are still there in Wisconsin. This is the time that we need to know and we need to learn when the population is still strong enough so that we can turn things around. Like you say, we can right the ship. And uh, so if we if we uh, wise up now and, and see where the pressure points are, then we can um, we can anticipate problems down the road and 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 take steps to to uh, to stop those those pressure points from from causing problems for the loon populations. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, for those listening again, uh, loonproject.org, you can go over there and, and see all the work that um, Walter and his team are doing, how you can donate and help give back. Walter Piper, 
thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, it's been very eye-opening. Uh, it's been great to, to hear about the work that you're doing. And uh, hopefully we can do this again soon when, you know, hopefully we've hit this goal and then we can talk about, you know, what, what's to come over the, you know, the coming years and, and the research that you and your team plan to do. Great, Marcus. Well, I, I, I can't thank you enough for, for giving us this exposure and an opportunity to, to uh, see if people will, will help out. And um, it's, been, it's been great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you, Walter. Take care, and we'll talk soon. Okay, bye-bye. All right, guys. Well, thank you again for <clears throat> sticking around and uh, listening to this episode that I had with Walter. Um, and if you had a chance to listen to it a second time around, uh, thank you uh, two times, <laughs> I suppose. Um, but no, um, do... Uh, as Walter alluded to towards the end of the episode there, be sure to check out the Loom Project uh, in ways that you can help donate and keep this project going uh, and hopefully uh, be part of the solution going forward uh, as it pertains to the loons. Um, yeah, I would also like to thank 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, Fish and wildlife.org. And over there, you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where it's going to be only uh, positive conservation driven content landing in your feeds. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Until next week, Stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you. Yeah.